Good morning. I don't know if anybody was scheduled for special music. We don't want to leave them out if they were scheduled, but I don't think anybody was asked. So we will go ahead. What are you called? In Acts 11.26, it tells us that the believers were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Why were they called Christians? Well, to us it's obvious, isn't it? They were followers of Christ. Because they believed in and followed the teachings of someone who claimed to be God himself. How many here today are believers in Jesus Christ? Okay. How many are followers? Hopefully, there'll be the same amount of hands. <laughs> As we're going to find out in a little bit, there may be a difference between believers in Jesus Christ and followers. For the sermon today, I got the idea. I went to a used bookstore here in Appleton a couple weeks ago, and I found a, a topical big topical book uh, of things in the Bible, and I was leafing through it, and uh, there were lots of neat things, but this one kind of took my eye. It was different names that God's people are called in the Bible, and there's a list of, in that book, 73 names. <clears throat> I thought about going through all 73, but I decided to have mercy on you. So we'll only go through six today, and we'll talk about them a little bit. And then I want to read a few excerpts of a book that I just read on this subject that will make us think, I think, a little bit about what our role is as followers of Jesus. The first one that Christians are called, if you want to turn with me to Revelation 17, verse 14, kind of a oblique one, it says in verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, talking about the kings of the earth and so on, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called. So you are the called. That's one of your names as a Christian, the called ones. Think Peter, James, Matthew, John, Andrew, etc. Jesus called them when he said, come and follow me. And they did. I'm glad that Revelation 17, 14 doesn't just stop right there. Because God calls everyone, doesn't he? And yet there's a verse in the Bible that says, many are called, but what? Few are chosen. It goes on to say in this verse that what? Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Faithful followers. So it's the called who become faithful followers who comprise the Lamb's victorious army in this picture here in Revelation. Not everyone who is called responds to become faithful followers. Think the rich young ruler or the guy who said, Oh, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go take care of my business. 
If you look at the pictures that are painted in those two stories, they never come back. They never follow. They were called, but they never follow. So the called means nothing unless you become a follower. The second one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that we just read for our scripture reading. And what did it say? What are we called? You remember? We're called ambassadors. What does our ambassador do to Israel or to France or to Brazil or any of the nations? What does the ambassador do? Okay, he represents us. What does that mean? <clears throat> what is his function? What does an ambassador actually do? First of all, he represents our country to that other country or to those other peoples. He lets them know what our leader's policy is toward them and what he would like their policies to be toward us. He tries to bring unity of purpose and thought between the two groups, our country, their country, whichever one it is. You, as an ambassador for Christ, are to be a true representative of Christ's policies, beliefs, and government. And you can't do that. Um, you can't uh, do that unless your life shows to others the policy of your leader. So if we are going to be ambassadors for Christ, our lives have to represent what our leader is trying to get us to put across to those around us. What would happen if, say, the ambassador to Israel sided more often on questions with the Arab world? Or if he tried to subvert all the treaties between us and Israel? Would he be a good ambassador? Really a pretty poor ambassador, wouldn't he? He really wouldn't even be representing our country very well. He would be deceiving people. And that's what we do when we don't act out being a proper ambassador for Christ. We may have the name, but unless we actually do what Christ wants us to do, we are deceiving people into thinking we're ambassadors for Christ. I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of us at times have been bad ambassadors? I think each one of us can look at our own lives and saying, at times we weren't very good ambassadors, and that's something we need to change. Number three, Christians are called something else in 1 Corinthians 15.58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, also always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Hebrews 2.11 also uses the same word, brothers. Now, a family name is important, is it not? It tells us who you are what your forefathers were and who they were, 
who your descendants are. Think about this for a moment. If your name is Churchill or Eisenhower or Lincoln, would you be proud of your family name? Probably. Something to be proud there, being associated with those people who had that name. On the other side, how would you feel if you were born into a family whose last name was Hitler or Mussolini or Lenin or Iscariot? How would you feel? Shame probably would motivate you to change your family name, wouldn't it? You wouldn't want anybody to know that you were part of that family. There's a phrase, and the phrase goes like this, blood is thicker than water. What does that mean? It means that family ties are much stronger than ties to non-family members. It means you support and deal with each other in a special way. a much different way than you might treat a non-family member. And what are we called here? It says we're called brothers. That means we're in the same family, whether you like it or not. That means that we need to support and strengthen each other, that we need to uphold the family name, which in this case is Christian, Seventh-day Adventist Christian, instead of tearing each other apart. Where are we in that process in our lives? Christ is our brother. So we are part of God's family in a, even a different way. How do we uphold and represent our family name as applying to Christ? Or do we act like fourth or fifth cousins who really don't have any close relations with the family at all? We have all failed, as we said before, but that's the challenge for us, is to try to represent the family name better and to uphold the family name and the family members better. Turn with me to Ephesians 5.8 for number four. Ephesians 5.8. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So the fourth one is Christians are called children of light. This means that we have to be living in the light or to follow the light that God has shown us in his word, which means that we have to zealously read his word to find the light, correct? Here's a self-query question for yourself. How many hours do you spend searching his word for the light? The challenge is spend more time searching for the light in his word than we spend on TV, movies, video games, and other things that we do in our lives. Do we really do that in our lives? What's the amount of time? Because remember, how much time and the importance we put in things depends on 
what's most important to us. So we need to challenge ourselves to put the time to studying God's word to follow that light if we're to be children of light. If we know the light, what are we supposed to do with it? We're supposed to share it. Seeing the world in which we live, and I'm sure all of you have read newspapers, see the Internet, and what's happening all over the world, is it good? It's hard to find anything good on the news anymore, isn't it, and on the Internet. So seeing the world in which we live and the signs of the times, how are you going to let your light shine and when? Another self-query question. How are we going to let our light shine and when? We're going to answer that in a minute at the very end. I should say, you're going to answer it for yourself. Number five. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7.22. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. I'm not sure that strikes me right, and I think all of us know why, be called a slave. That kind of goes against our, our grain, doesn't it? Some of you younger people probably have never heard of this uh, movie before, but some of you older people do. How many have heard of Ben-Hur? It was a movie back in the, what, 60s, 70s, something like this, and Charlton Heston was the star before he was in the Ten Commandments. And uh, so I was watching that the other night. I have a copy, so I was watching it. And at one point in the movie, this Jewish man is sentenced to the galleys. How many know what the galleys were? It's the Roman warships, and they had all the prisoners or the slaves chained up down underneath the deck, rowing these Roman warships. He was chained to his post, couldn't move other than rowing. He f was fed food only when the captains ordered them to be fed or to have water. So that's what I was thinking when I was thinking about slaves. I don't like that idea. For our black brothers and sisters, a different idea probably comes out. Plantations, cotton, no education. And none of these two ideas are very good, are they? None of them are very good. And yet, God calls us to be his slaves. What does that mean? It means that our total wills are to be completely given over to someone else, to Christ. Since we know how much he loves us, we know that he won't do anything that isn't in our best interest. So we give him our lives. We let him lead wherever he wants. That's hard for me to do, if you know me. How hard is it for you to do? It's a very difficult thing for, I think, most 
adults to do because we're used to doing it on our own and for ourselves. But that is exactly what Christ is calling us to do on these verses, is to be his slave, to turn over everything we have to him. The last one, number six. Let's turn to Romans 8, 17. It says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. How many people here wish they had a rich uncle who shared his wealth? (laughs) We hear that term a lot, don't you, as growing up. Oh, this person has a rich uncle or that person has a rich uncle. And I always wished I had a rich uncle who would kind of, you know, take me under his wing and and uh, give me anything that I ever wanted as a kid. I know of someone who didn't have a rich uncle but had a rich grandpa who paid off their house loan twice. He'd be my favorite grandpa, let me tell you that. But on the bad side, we've all heard of stories where families scratch, claw, and even kill to get inheritance, haven't we? Or I have heard of heirs who have had their inheritance put in a locked trust because their parents didn't trust them to use the money very wisely. So it only came out a little bit at a time. We've been promised the greatest inheritance in history. more than our feeble imaginations can even grasp. A home in the New Jerusalem, far better than the homes we have right now. A country estate more gorgeous than Beverly Hills. Life that will span eternity. Personal time with God himself. Friendship with our guardian angels, who protected us from harm and from Satan's angels. Rights to living libraries of nature and space where we can learn forever and never forget. All of this comes with one simple decision. And we could go over all of those 73 names in the Bible, but each of them come down to the same thing. We are called those things if we give our lives to God and are willing to serve him and go wherever he wants us to go. So God really wants us to know, you know, the the names that he will call us, the, the rewards that he will give us. He's put it in the Bible many, many times for us to read. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I think it was Jeannie, right, that gave us this book to read, and we read through, And I'm going to quote a few passages from this book because it's on the same subject. And I would recommend that each of you go and get a copy of this book if you want. It's called Not a Fan. Have any of you heard it all? Not a Fan. It's by Kyle Eidelman. Interesting book. Uh, And I'm going to start out just with a preface. 
to show you where he's writing it from. He's a pastor. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's a pastor. This is what he says. It's a Thursday afternoon, and I'm sitting in the church sanctuary. It's empty now, but Easter is only a few days away. More than 30,000 people will come to the weekend services. So obviously he's a pastor in a big church. And I have no idea what I'm going to say to them. I can feel the pressure mounting as I sit there hoping that a sermon will come to mind. I know how that feels. I look around at the empty seats, hoping some inspiration will come. Instead, there's just more perspiration. I wipe the sweat off my brow and I look down. This sermon needs to be really good. There are some people who only come to church on Christmas and Easter. We call them Christers. I want to make sure they all come back. What could I say to get their attention? How can I make my message more appealing? Is there something creative I could do that would be a big hit and get people talking? Still nothing. There's a Bible in the chair in front of me, so I grab it. I can't think of a scripture to turn to. I've spent my life studying this book, and I can't think of one passage to wow the Christers. I consider it the way I did as a kid, kind of like a magic eight ball. You ask a question, open up the Bible, point to the page, and whatever answers is there to answer your questions. Finally, a thought crosses my mind. I wonder what Jesus taught whenever he had a big crowd. What I discovered would change me forever, not just as a preacher, but as a follower. I found that when Jesus had a large crowd, he would most often preach a message that was likely to cause them to leave. Did you catch that? Whenever Jesus had a big crowd, he preached a message that would most likely cause them to leave. In that empty sanctuary, I read of one such occasion in John chapter 6. So if you want to just turn there, Jesus is addressing a crowd that has likely grown to more than 5,000 people. He has never been more popular. Word has spread about his miraculous healings and his inspirational teaching. The crowd of thousands has come to cheer him on. After a full day of teaching, Jesus knows the people are getting hungry, so he turns to his disciples and asks what the people will do for food. One of the disciples, Philip, tells Jesus that even with eight months' wages, it wouldn't be enough money to buy bread for all this crowd. But another person says, I've seen a little boy, and he has five loaves and two fishes. So Jesus takes the boy's sack lunch and feeds the entire crowd. The Bible tells us there's even a bunch of food left over afterwards. After dinner, the crowd decides to camp out for the night so that they can be with Jesus the next morning. These are some big-time fans of Jesus. The next morning when the crowd wakes and they're hungry again, they look around for Jesus, their meal ticket, but he's nowhere around. These fans are hoping for an encore performance. Eventually, they realize that Jesus and his disciples have crossed over to the other side of the lake, so by the time they catch up with Jesus, 
They're starving. They've missed their chance to order breakfast, and they're ready to find out what's on the lunch menu. But Jesus has decided to shut down the all-you-can-eat buffet. He's not handing out any more free samples. In verse 26, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus knows that these people are not going to all the trouble and sacrifice because they're following him, but because they want some free food. They're fans. Was it Jesus they wanted, or were they only interested in what he could do for them? In verse 35, Jesus offers himself, but the question is, would that be enough? Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Suddenly, Jesus is the only thing on the menu. The crowd has to decide if he will, if he will satisfy or if they are hungry for something else. Here's what we read at the end of the chapter. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of the fans turned to go home. I was struck by the fact, this author says, that Jesus doesn't chase after them. He doesn't soften his message to make it any more appealing. He doesn't send the disciples chasing after them with a creative handout, inviting them to come back for a build-your-own-Sunday ice cream social. He seems okay with the fact that his popularity has plummeted. Uh, in the sanctuary, surrounded by thousands of empty seats that day. Here's what became very clear, the author states. It wasn't the size of the crowd that Jesus cared about. It was about their level of commitment. It wasn't the size of the crowd. It was about their level of commitment. On a little ways in the book, it may seem that there are many followers of Jesus, but if they were to honestly define the relationship they have with him, I'm not so sure it would be accurate to describe them as followers. Seems to me that there is a more suitable word to describe many Christians today. They are not followers, they are fans. Here's the most basic definition of a fan in the dictionary. An enthusiastic admirer. It's the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt on and a painted chest, you know, with a big letter or something. He sits in the stands and he cheers for his team. He gets a signed jersey hanging on his wall at home and multiple bumper stickers in the back of his car. But he's never in the game. He never breaks a sweat or takes a hard hit on the open field. He knows all about the players and can rattle off their latest statistics, but he really doesn't know the players. He yells, he cheers, but nothing is really required of him. There is no sacrifice he has to make. And the truth is, as exciting or as excited as he seems, 
If the team he's cheering for starts to let him down and has a few off seasons, his passion wanes pretty quickly. After several losing seasons, you can, you can expect him to jump off the fan bandwagon and begin cheering for some other team. He is an enthusiastic admirer. It's the woman who never misses the celebrity news shows. She always picks up the latest People magazine. She's a huge fan of some actress who is the latest Hollywood sensation. And this woman not only knows every movie this actress has been in, she knows what high school this actress went to. She knows the birthday of the actress. She knows the name of her first boyfriend. She even knows what this actress's real hair color is, something the actress herself maybe doesn't know any longer. She knows everything there is to know, but she doesn't know the actress. She's a huge fan, but she's just a fan. I think Jesus has a lot of fans these days. Now remember, this is not me talking. This is a minister of a huge Christian church. Fans who cheer for him when things are going well, but who walk away when it's a difficult season. Fans who sit safely in the stands cheering, but they know nothing of the sacrifice and pain in the field. Fans of Jesus who know all about him, but don't know him. Jesus was never interested in having fans. That's why he said what he did when he fed the 5,000 at the end. Fans who, um, when he, what he defines, uh, when he defines what kind of relationship he wants, enthusiastic admirer is not an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to stadiums. Every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they can cheer for Jesus, but they have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat uh, to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. At the church where I'm a pastor, someone sent me an email asking to be removed from the church membership. The stated reason for leaving read as follows. I don't like Kyle's sermons. How would you like to be a pastor and get an email like that? That's all it said. That begs for some kind of explanation, so I decided to call that person. I checked the name of the person and got the phone number. I wanted to confirm that it wasn't my wife. <laughs> that would have been very awkward. I was driving my car and called him on the cell phone. I would suggest that when making this type of call from your personal phone, first go to settings on your phone, then show my caller ID, and then turn it off. Do not attempt this while driving. When he answered, I simply said, Hi, this is Kyle Eidelman. I understand you're leaving the church because you don't like my sermons. There was a brief silence. I caught him off guard, just as I had planned to do. It was awkward for a moment, and then he started talking, rambling, really, trying to express what he meant. Somewhere in the middle of his lengthy, lengthy explanation, he said something. 
What he said was not meant to be encouraging, but his words caused me to breathe such a sigh of relief that he pulled over to the side of the road, grabbed a pen, and I wrote down what he said. Well, whenever I listen to one of the messages, I feel like you are trying to interfere in my life. Yeah, um, that's kind of like my job description. But do you hear what he is really saying? He's saying, I believe in Jesus, I'm a big fan, but don't ask me to follow. I don't mind coming to church on the weekends. I pray before meals. I even slap a Jesus fish on my bumper. But I don't want Jesus to interfere in my life. When Jesus defined the relationship he wants with us, he makes it clear that being a fan who believes without making any real commitment is not an option. One last area. There's a great story in the Old Testament that illustrates the kind of commitment Jesus is looking for. If you want to open your Bibles, go to 1 Kings 19. It's a story about Elijah when he went to select Elisha as his successor. When he finds him, Elisha is in the field plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. That's the indication of Elisha's wealth, if you didn't catch it. He was doing pretty well for himself. As Elijah approached, I wonder if he thought, this might not be an easy sale. Elisha will be leaving a lot behind. If Elisha was going to respond to God's invitation to follow him as a prophet, it would require leaving behind his family, his friends, and his successful career. When Elisha heard the invitation, he didn't try and keep his business going on the side. He didn't try and negotiate the contract so it could be more of a part-time deal. Instead, we read what Elisha did. What did he do? He slaughtered his 24 oxen. He got them together on his farm, uh, or he got together all of his farm plows, and he lit them all on fire. The people of the community came to his farm, and he barbecued the oxen and served it up to his neighbors. He was making a clear statement of what? He was not turning back. He was going to follow what God wanted him to do. He wanted to give his full attention to the plow God had given him, so he burned all the old ones. He was not going to turn back. When you accept the invitation of Jesus to follow him, you are not just saying that he is a top priority in your life. You are making him the only priority. He desperately wants you, but he won't share you with anybody else. He will settle for nothing less than your undivided attention and complete commitment. He wants you to invest in him more than you invest in your stock portfolio. He wants you to surrender to him more of your time and talent than the office gets out of you. He wants you to excel expel more joy and energy in worshiping him than you do in watching the big game. I know that there is a... Uh, or no, excuse me. This is how God loves us and how he wants to be loved. Please understand, Jesus loves you very much, 
He died to have a relationship with you. He will not share your heart with anyone. He will settle for nothing less than your complete devotion and heartfelt affection. He makes no compromises when, or he made no compromises when he came, and he gave his life, life up for you. And he takes no compromises now when he asks you to do the same. The reason Jesus is so adamant about followers surrendering everything is because the reality is this. The one thing we are most reluctant to give up is the one thing that has the most potential to become a substitute for him. Really, what we're talking about here is idolatry. When we are to be following Jesus, who is ahead of us? But find ourselves looking behind. Uh, when we are to be following Jesus, who is ahead of us? But find ourselves looking behind us, we are revealing what we are substituting for him, something else. Like the deaconesses who took up the offering to come up, I have something to pass out. I was talking with the pastor this week, and he wants to have each of us in the church to think about how we are going to deal with what he has in mind for the next. And what I typed up is a little commitment, paper or card. This is not to turn back in. Did you hear that? This is not to turn back in. It is for you to read, for you to take home, and sign your name and the date, because this is between you and God. It's a commitment that you are making to God of what you will do. Do you have to sign it? No. I'm not going to be coming to your house and checking out to see whether you signed it, the power. But this is a commitment that we would like for you to think about. As we've talked in the sermon today, there are many names that Christ calls us in the Bible, all of which lead to the fact that he wants us to follow him. And if he wants us to follow him, he wants us to do it unconditionally with our full mind and body. And listening to the book, he wrote the book because he himself, this pastor, realized that not only the congregation that he has of 30,000, but he himself was acting more like a fan than a follower. And so as you get this, take it home, prayerfully read it, think about what God is asking us to do. And then for your own commitment to God, sign it, put the date on it, and leave it someplace so you can see it, so you can, be, you can remind yourself each day of what you have committed to do in this coming year. Our Father, we so anxiously look forward to that day when we can be with you in heaven. What glory that will be. You have not only promised us that inheritance, but you have also promised to come down here and help us make it to that inheritance. We also know that you have left it to us to take this light and word to the world. 
the true meaning of what you have said. We know that time is short. We can look around us. We can see the world and its people falling apart. We know that we do not have a long period of time. And we want to be used. So please be with us. Give us the courage to step out of our comfort zone and become followers, not just fans. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.